know it's sugar free Now tell me girl, how you like your tea? Up in here, we like it sugar free Come through, stop by, get up with me With your girl sitting back, I'm a little crazy Ooh, right here with me It's where you wanna be Let's get it sugar free, yeah Now tell me girl And welcome to another episode of the Sugar Free Podcast. I'm so glad to have y'all join us today. Now today I have a question for the ladies. And it's a real important question too. Now fellas, you actually may have an answer to this question as well. So feel free to chime in if the spirit moves you. But I just got a burning question on my heart that I just need to ask. So here it goes. Why men great till they gotta be great? Woo! Did you feel that, ladies? Right in the depths of your soul? I felt it too, honey. You know what that feeling was? It was the truth. And just like Lizzo said, truth hurts. You know what else hurts? Heartbreak. That's where we're going to be digging into on today's episode, Navigating Real Heartbreak Part 1, Breaking Cycles of Toxicity. Now, today's guest describes heartbreak as the point where your reality fails to meet your expectations. Based on that definition, heartbreak can really happen anywhere, and it often does. So today we won't just be discussing why men great till they gotta be great, but also why jobs great till they gotta be great, and why friends great till they gotta be great, and of course, my personal favorite, I think you better call Tyrone. And tell him, come on, help you. Oh, wait, (laughs) wait, wait. Wrong song, wrong episode, but y'all get the picture. Heartbreak can happen anywhere, and it hurts like hell every single time it does. To help us explore our hurt feelings and the truth, as well as the unfortunate cycles of toxicity that often lead us to heartbreak and hurt feelings, I have invited to the tea party life coach, attorney, and relationship blogger, Miss Daphne McGee. Daphne! Girlfriend, welcome and tell the good people who you are and what you do. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, So my name is Daphne McGee. I am an attorney for a nonprofit law firm um, in Texas, and I also own a life coaching business. And on the side, I blog about my experiences with marriage, divorce, um, emotional and spiritual abuse, and faith deconstruction and decolonization. Okay, so she totally undersold the blog. So I'm going to plug it really quick. The blog is fantastic. It's called The Golden Daff. And the series is called The Marriage Autopsy, right? Yes. So if you have never heard of this in your life, I need you to go Google Golden Daff Marriage Autopsy and read the blog. It is fantastic. Fantastic. I'm secretly hoping it becomes a book at some point, <laughs> but it is, is amazing. And so in the blog, Daphne deconstructs the 
the marriage. That's why it's called the marriage autopsy. And then also the aftermath of the marriage and divorce. And I felt like she had such an interesting and fantastic perspective on navigating heartbreak. And that is today's topic, navigating heartbreak. So I just want to kind of set the tone for the conversation because I think a lot of times when you hear heartbreak, there is a romantic connotation or context to it. And people assume that you're going to be talking about a romantic relationship. But this episode isn't just about navigating heartbreaks through romantic relationships. It's about navigating heartbreak for any phase of life in any context, because heartbreak can occur anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I was talking to Daphne one day, she described heartbreak as any time your expectations fail to meet your reality. So I just want to dig into that. That's like where I want to start this conversation and start talking about the expectations you had in your relationships and you can kind of guide us to which relationships you want to start with first. And then I want to dig into what the reality was before we get into the heartbreak. Got it. Set the scene for us. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So when I think about the expectations and I'll start with my marriage, but you'll see it's, it's really kind of intertwined with my like relationship with God and kind of spiritual relationship. But when I think about the expectations that I had for my marriage, they had been set up for me through teachings that I had. I grew up in the like Christian Baptist church and really that um, in the church, marriage was sort of taught as like the peak spiritual experience. Like you can be the most spiritual person if you get married. Um, And then so on the opposite side of that is like, if you get divorced, then there's kind of a stain, a mark, like something that says, well, you know, you weren't great at being a spiritual person. It's like, okay, well, God still loves you, but you kind of failed. So, you know, (laughs) there's just kind of an an asterisk there. Mm -hmm. But so when I think about marriage being set up as like this ultimate goal, for me, it wasn't about like trying to find someone to like fall in love, have a family and, you know, have my own needs and desires met because I was really taught that that wasn't important. Like I shouldn't be trying to meet my own needs, that my goal is to live for someone or something else. And like marriage was kind of a way to fast track that. I actually went to a Christian wedding a couple of weeks ago and the person officiating the wedding said, um, marriage, like if you want to, um, become, if you want to become like Christ, marriage is the fast track to doing that. Like marriage is the fast track to becoming like Christ. And it was funny because <laughs> when I think about my own marriage, I was like, well, and I, I remembered the time where Jesus was flipping tables and I'm like, I definitely did that in my marriage. So if that's what Mm. he was talking about, then like (laughs) that definitely checked off the boxes for me. But just in terms of becoming more, more spiritual, more spiritually oriented, um, you know, I was taught, okay, you have to find someone that loves God, that like reads the Bible, goes to church, um, you know, does all these things, checks off all these boxes. And I was never really taught about 
compatibility, right? Because it was supposed to be like, if you marry someone that's a Christian, they love God, well, then you should be able to make it work. So I didn't have a lot of goals to that end. My main priority, again, was really spiritual. I wanted to make sure that I was doing what I thought I was supposed to because I was also an achiever. So Mm -hmm. if somebody is telling me I can get to a better or a higher level of something, I'm going to do what it takes to do that. That's so interesting because I feel like whether you're religious or not, there are so many pressures on women to seek partnership. And there can be a lot of women's value tied into and associated with. And so, like I said, regardless of your level of spiritual dedication, you can feel pressured to enter into a relationship because of what you think you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) Like you need to do this to get some level of agency in society or a certain status. And I wonder how many women are entering into these relationships without compatibility in mind, without their needs being met in mind with just the end goal of marriage being the only thing that's top of priority and how that potentially can affect the quality of the relationship. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, when we think about that and even in the United States, like women weren't allowed to even open bank accounts by themselves until what, like the sixties or something like that, sixties or seventies. Like it's relatively recent that women can be, you know, not married and be able to like function well in society or somewhat is equal to men in society. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. So it makes sense that some of these things would be passed down because we're still living in a patriarchal society. So it makes sense that, okay, now like women are kind of ingrained and conditioned to seek partnership for other reasons than like happiness or pleasure. Like that's a really relatively recent phenomenon that women even have the ability to do that. But then when I think about how that looks like in Christianity, I mean, it really is just repackaged patriarchy. Um, And I think that maybe that is one way to try to continue those types of values now that, okay, like the law is, has changed. It's like, okay, well, how can we continue these types of values and maintain these same types of um, social structures and really oppression? How can we do that without these other institutions? I think like the church and Christianity has really been a tool to do that. That's deep. I mean, like, so I don't want to say I'm a heathen. (laughs) (laughs) For all my my listeners out there, I don't want to say I'm a heathen at all. Uh, However, I would say that I'm spiritual, not necessarily religious. And so I say that because I I believe in a higher power and a higher being, but I don't necessarily do the religious part. Like when, when you hear the word religion, to me, it's something that you do over and over and over again. It's a Mm -hmm. practice. I do Mm -hmm. something religiously. Like I'll do anything spiritual in a religious fashion. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and, and I'm good with that because my relationship with God is my relationship with God. But I say all that to say that that's so powerful, how you describe the, the impact of the church, because I think that's part of my reason why maybe you have been hesitant 
to go religiously is because I want to maintain some level of autonomy. And so like, can you unpack that a little bit more? Like how the, A, the intertwining of your relationship in the church and how you felt like first caused you to be in a relationship that maybe you feel like you had no business and be how it kept you in a relationship that maybe you felt like you had no business. Cause so I'm going to tell you, I, regardless of my spirituality, religion, I've been in 10 million thousand relationships that I had no business. And I stayed <laughs> in 10 million thousand relationships that I had no business. So I, I'm just curious about the, the religious uh, influence on those two things. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think they'll definitely overlap because again, I think a lot of these religious concepts and theologies, and I say that with quote fingers because they're really more so ideologies, but I think, like I said, they come from patriarchy and other oppressive institutions. So I think they'll definitely overlap. But when I think about um, what got me into that relationship, one of the first things I write about on the blog is how even when 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 X, as I call my ex-husband in the blog, even when he what a great name for him. Right. Can we just talk. <laughs> what a great, that's what I say. Well, y'all need to go read the blog because person X. Right. Like, I'm sorry, girl. I just have to call. <laughs> it's all good. It's all, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was it was definitely fun to write. But like one of the first things that I get into is that when he approached me, my gut was like, nah, he's trying to play you. And it wasn't there wasn't anything overt. This was a Facebook message. There wasn't anything overtly disrespectful or whatever. But I just had this feeling like he's trying to play you. But then there was this counter feeling that came in that was like, well, you can just have a conversation, right? It's not going to hurt. And so I think the theology or ideology that caused me to do that was this idea around um, emotions being bad. I had always kind of been taught that feelings are fleeting and unstable. And so that means that they're bad and we shouldn't rely on them. Like we should rely on like knowledge that we have um, about God. Right. But that was never, it was never taught that like we could have our own knowledge. It was always like rely on somebody else. So it was rely on our parents or rely on our pastor or rely on like community or what the Bible says, mm. but it was never, Oh, you can actually um, use your own feelings and intuition as a way to guide you into making decisions. Mm. So by the time X approached me, I was already at a point where I wasn't in tune with my gut and I like, I wasn't listening. I was already trained to sort of push that down. Um, I still felt it, but I was trained with the responses to like, you know, how would I respond when I felt like my gut was off, right? Because it's like, well, I need to not uh, lean on my own understanding, right? Which is a scripture. It's like, trust God and like acknowledge God and not lean on my own understanding. So when I had that type of gut feeling, and that, I mean, that was the first of many times in that relationship. But when I had that, you know, I was already trained to dismiss it. Mm, that is so powerful, that training. Because again, like religion aside, I can't tell you how many times I have 
had a gut feeling that something wasn't right or red flags, right? So for mm-hmm. a lot of women, you see these red flags, you, you see these potential issues and you ignore them and you pass them off and you don't necessarily chalk it up to any religious context or connotation. It's just like, oh, well, he ain't mean it. That's okay. Mm-hmm. He not going to do it again. It's, it's okay. And you kind of fool yourself. Right. <laughs> you talk oh. yourself into believing that yes. whatever the behavior is, is okay. Yes. Yeah. Because like you said, so religious reasons aside, it's like one, I did have that conditioning, but also, you know, I had kind of been given these messages and thought already like, okay, marriage is like the best thing to do. So I'm not going to like deny any potential opportunities for that. Right. Like I'm going to continue to engage because, you know, there's also a fear factor that goes with that. That's saying, well, you know, if you're not married by this time or not doing this or that, or you're not even talking to anybody, like how are you going to turn somebody away? You're not even talking to anybody, but you're trying to get married, how that's going to work. So we entertain, like you said, these situations, we know we don't need to because we're afraid of not meeting the standards that we didn't even set for ourselves. That is so real. I I can tell you that in my experience with romantic relations specifically, but even in my career, there's like a comfort in doing what people expect of you. Mm -hmm. And so in society, dating, marriage, when you hit a certain age is something that's expected of you. And there's a comfort there. And I realized when I was dating, I sensed comfort. Mm-hmm. When yeah. I was in a serious relationship, like there was comfort there, not just because this is my person, but because there are no questions like, who are you dating? You know, when you settling down, why are you single? Oh, that's my, oh, I hate that question. But there yeah. was like a sense of relief and comfort associated with doing that thing that was expected of me, even in my career as a lawyer. There have been many times when I felt like or thought that this was not my ministry, (laughs) Mm, mm. not because I'm not good at it. Right. Like we went to. So Daphne and I were classmates. And so we went to a fantastic law school, received a top notch education, passed the bar like we have been conferred with a license, been practicing for some years. So not that I'm not proficient, I can't do it, but I felt like there was a greater calling mm-hmm. for what I wanted to do, but was scared because it wasn't what was expected of me. Right. And so I stayed where it was comfortable because it was comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so that's the same thing, right? As we're setting up the stage for this heartbreak conversation, part of that is not only getting into a relationship that's potentially not best for you, but it's staying in a relationship. And so before we talk about like how you unwound yourself from the relationship, what were the signs? What were those red flags that were most obvious to you? And then what were those things that caused you to, to ignore them? Yeah. So 
it's interesting. So when I think about red flags, I feel like a lot of people talk about red flags in the context of like, what is someone else doing? What is their behavior? Like, what, where is the list? Like, where does this fall on the list? But I feel like for me, the biggest red flags happened with my gut and how I was feeling because sometimes you can't always articulate what a red flag is in the moment, but your gut will still know like, Hey, something is off. And so there was a lot of times we would have conversations. I would feel uneasy. Um, like I said, my gut would be like, mm, he's trying to play you, even though you could maybe look at the words and they would seem innocent, but you know, I would just, I would feel uneasy. I would feel queasy a few weeks before the wedding. I just wasn't happy. <laughs> You know, so like for me, that should have been the biggest red flag, you know, because there weren't a lot of things I could say at the time that like, oh, I can put this on such and such list and like check it off as a red flag. And I think one of the reasons for that is um, it kind of goes back to like the religious piece of it. So we weren't living together or anything like that before we were married. We had committed to not even kiss before we got married. So wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need him back. Hold on, hold on. You had not kissed this man before you married him. I had not kissed X before I married him. How, how did you even like, what is that? What? I, I don't even have words. Like, I need you to break this down for me. Like, what? First of all, what was wrong or the harm in kissing? Like, was it a temptation factor? And B, like, how did you feel about marrying somebody that you had no physical interaction with? So, there's no harm in kissing. Um, but let me tell you where that frame of frame of thought comes from. So there was a book that came out uh, when I was seven years old called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it was all about courtship, again, in these really conservative Christian circles. It was all about courtship and the idea that dating is to figure out if you're supposed to marry somebody or not. So if, if you are not then, you know, you should move on quickly if, you know, if you think you are. And again, they kind of use those same standards. Does this person love God? Like those are, you know, those are the standards. It wasn't about compatibility. So it's like, if this person loves God, then like you should be able to work that out. So, but they also, it was really big on not having sex before marriage. And then, so they were like, well, even things that could lead to that, that should be off the table. And so a lot of people that follow those teachings didn't even hold hands, didn't even have dates together one-on-one. A lot of people would just do group dates or have family dates. The Duggars, that's that same thing, that whole courtship model. We this see it's super intense. It was, so it wasn't that intense for me. But that was something and like, and I didn't, I was okay with not kissing, but I wasn't like super firm on that. But that's something X really wanted to do. Um, So, and I was okay with that because again, he said like his goal was to honor God and like stay pure before marriage. And so because that was his goal, and again, because I had been conditioned to think that that's the best thing I could want, I was okay with not having that physical interaction with him because, again, I had always been told, like, okay, if you follow the rules, you do everything right, then you're going to have a great marriage. Like, the physical part will take care of itself, and so, like, you shouldn't worry about that. Like, you honor God and all these other things 
you know, will happen how they're supposed to. So even though, you know, we're not supposed to be seeking our own happiness, people still said, well, yeah, it's still going to work out this way even better if you follow the rules. So you should be doing that. So it's sort of like an indirect um, prosperity gospel, really. Like you follow the rules, you do the right things, you'll be blessed by a great marriage, great sex life, whatever you want, like, you know, communication, all of that in marriage, if you follow the rules. Oh, God's just going to have to forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows my heart. This is, you know, God bless you if you can do it, but it just, you know. So anyways, let's get back to these red flags. So you hadn't kissed them. <laughs> Hadn't hugged him. None of that. You about to get married? I did hug him. Okay, okay, okay. We did hug. (laughs) Okay, so did a little hugging. And now the wedding's coming up and you're having these feelings of unhappiness and you ignored them. And so now that you- and, And I didn't just ignore them. I really rationalized them because another thing I had been taught was that, and this was the subtitle of a super popular book, was that marriage is meant for holiness and not happiness. So I was like, okay, if I'm not happy, I shouldn't be super concerned about that because that shouldn't be my goal. I shouldn't be getting married to make myself happy. I should be getting married to make myself more spiritual, more like God. So actually, like this is a sanctifying experience, something that I should be grateful for and just continue to endure because like ultimately honoring God should bring me the most joy and happiness. Oh, this is so fascinating. I'm, I'm from Las Vegas, the city of sin. So <laughs> oh, no. I am Southern through and through <laughs> that. That's a whole nother episode we'll have to talk about. So anyway, so you're unhappy. And then I'm assuming that you were also unhappy in the marriage. Well, it wasn't necessarily like that initially because there was, I mean, there was that honeymoon phase. It was like, okay, now like we got to this goal, like we did what we said we wanted to do. Now we can prepare to have um, this life and like work together because I was under the impression that once we like started living together and like could mesh our lives more that a lot of the issues that I thought were like communication issues, I thought a lot of those would kind of solve themselves because before we got married, we weren't spending that much time together. And so I was thinking, okay, when we have this kind of dedicated time to, you know, continue to learn more about each other, work together on the marriage, establish our goals. I thought that, okay, that would kind of work itself out. And it sort of did for a little bit, but that honestly, it didn't last long. Um, If you see, I put this in the blog too. It was a journal entry about a month after the marriage. I was like, okay, did I, what's going on here? Did I mess up? Is this, does it just take time? But again, there's a rationalization for that. There's always something. It's like, there's always, these these are the things that like, that keep you in these situations. There's Mm. always something to combat the thoughts that come up. And one of those Mm. is like, oh, well, marriage is hard. And like, a lot of people told us, you know, we were in a very conservative, like Baptist church at the time. And so a lot of people like, yeah, marriage is hard. Our first two years, our first three years were hard, um, but it gets better or it's worth it. Um, Come to find out later on, a lot of those people were in their second marriages. (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, like I said, I feel like I've definitely been in some really toxic slash low-key abusive relationships. And I feel like that's kind of 
what I gathered from what you said today and in your blog is that there's this cycle of something happening that you know is not right, you ignoring that thing, and then usually your partner aids you in ignoring that thing. Absolutely. I, I dated a guy once that was the, the most horrible gaslighter and like, I wasn't sure what was reality anymore. I would have to, I only brought him things of concern if I had physical evidence. That's how bad it had gotten because he could literally explain away mm -hmm. every situation. And I dated two guys like that. Mm -hmm. That, that <laughs> I'm going to get to that in a second, but literally everything that they said, I couldn't trust, but at the same time, I didn't trust myself enough. So all I had was what they said. And so the only thing grounding me to reality in these extremely toxic situations was the physical proof and evidence I had. And so I remember one time, I knew this guy was cheating on me. Like I knew it. But every time I came to him, he had an excuse. The one time, and this was the last time and we broke up that I caught him, the girl he was cheating on me with approached me. Mm. And she was like, I know this is your man, but I've been seeing him for X number of months. And I mm. thought you should know. And I was mm. like, you got a whole lot of gumption, ma'am, because I could have, you know, what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, you don't know me. You don't know where I'm, you don't know me at all. Like right. I could have not received that well. But in my heart, I was so grateful to have truth. Mm -hmm. I had been in such a toxic situation for so long. Mm -hmm. I was so happy to have the truth. And the only way I was able to catch him, I had her call him from my phone. Oh, wow. So he would know he was caught. Right. And, right. And, but that was the only way. And I knew I was like, would you mind doing this for me? Because I know if I tell him this happened, he's going to say you're lying. Like he's going to explain it away. I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to confront him and catch him in this is if you're here, you're the evidence. Right. Mm -hmm. And so did you have that similar experience of that cycle of toxicity and that cycle of just really gaslighting and abuse? Yeah, no, absolutely. That was certainly a part of the experience. And then as far as I know, he wasn't cheating on me. I wouldn't put it past him. And, you know, like if I were to find that out, I wouldn't be surprised. But it was more so like our interpersonal dynamics where he would continually like criticize and invalidate me. Um, there was definitely gaslighting. But then sort of adding that spiritual component on there, there's always the excuse of, well, I'm still a sinner, like God is working on me, you know, can you forgive me? And it's sort of an, sort of a request, but also kind of a demand. Um, and this is where um, part of where kind of the power imbalance comes in when you're talking about like theology, like toxic theology, right? Because in a lot of circles, like these same circles with purity culture, um, there's a theology called complementarianism, which basically says, men and women are equal, but have different roles and men should be and are the head of the household. They end up kind of making decisions because of headship and like wives are supposed to submit. 
So then you get this unequal power dynamic. And it's interesting because we talked about this, me and X talked about this before we got married, because I was like, I'm not for the gender roles, <laughs> you know, like I was pretty clear about that. And, you know, he's like said he wasn't either. Right. But once we got married, that sort of changed. Um, it wasn't super overt, but it would come down to like, basically when he would want to end a conversation, he was like, well, you know, I'm the man and that's that. And he would use that as a reason to, you know, not listen to me, we would do Bible studies at one point. And like, when I had an opinion about something that was different from his, he would dismiss it. Like it was always an argument. It was always a thing. Um, he had even got to the point where he said, like, he didn't want to learn anything from me. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> wow. So that, I mean, that was toward the end of the marriage, but there was definitely this continual cycle of these types of behaviors that, you know, kept happening. And then sort of this demand for forgiveness, again, a new honeymoon phase where it's like things are better. Um, but that's just the kind of, that's to keep you in that loop to keep you in that cycle. So yeah, I definitely experienced that. Mm. Mm. So I want to get into at what point in this process and in the cycle, did you realize that it was time to go and that you had had enough? And what was your process for extricating yourself from that situation? Yeah. So the first step or the first thing I did to really change what I was doing in the relationship was the realization that I was not acting in a healthy way. This came about when after one particular argument, you know, I was really tired of him dismissing me and validating me, you know, using everything else in life as an excuse to not um, try to build our relationship. You know, he would say, oh, I have to teach at the church. I have to work. I have to run. I have to do all these other things. And so like there was never time to really address the issues that we had for him because, I mean, I guess he didn't necessarily have the issues, right? I was the one that had the problem, but I had gotten into a place where I was really tired and frustrated with it. So we were, we had a conversation it was a Saturday morning and I like, he was trying to leave to go to work. And I'm like, you don't have to go to work right now. Like, let's have a conversation. And he just wouldn't. So I took his keys. I hid his keys. I was like yelling and screaming. I never cursed again. Cause I was a rule follower. So I never really cursed before I got married. I ain't never after. heard you curse. Right. Right. Exactly. Cause <laughs> I, look, cause that was before marriage. <laughs> So like cursing, I was like, now I got to a point where I was throwing like all of his stuff around the bedroom, just like an anger. Like I just wanted something to respond because he wasn't. And what I realized that really woke me up to the fact that I was not acting in a healthy way. So I feel like that was my turning point. I, I really came to the realization that, okay, he's telling me what he is and what he's not going to do with his words and with his behavior. I need to get to a place where I can accept that and I can move forward in a healthy way. Because again, if my goal was to honor God at that point and like be a spiritual person, that wasn't it. We're like responding how I was it like that, that wasn't it. So I realized I needed to get to a healthier point in terms of how I respond. So I had read a lot of books at that point on like emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, and I could see the cycles really clearly. So 
I got to the point where I was like, okay, when I recognize things going on, I'm just going to remove myself from these conversations earlier because I know they're not going anywhere. <laughs> like I know the purpose is to just make me feel crazy or to just have drama. Like I realized he would just kind of thrive on drama. So I'm like, okay, I'll remove myself from those conversations earlier. I also kind of changed how I was making decisions. Like a lot of times, you know, again, I was told when you get married, you're supposed to be one and you're supposed to like be making decisions together and like all of that that caused a lot of strife and stress for me because one, he wouldn't always be available to talk about different decisions or things, but you know, those conversations just wouldn't always go well. So I decided, okay, I'm going to just start doing more things that I want without talking to him about it because that's easier. Right. And like, I can avoid the stress and the strife. And so I started to really just build up those habits. I wasn't necessarily thinking about leaving immediately because I also had to deal with the baggage around divorce, the things that I had been taught about divorce and what that means long-term, what that means spiritually. So I had to deal with that. So I wasn't automatically on the path to leaving, but I was on the path to making myself healthier and just having healthier interactions with him, which sometimes meant, okay, I'm going to hang up now. I'm not going to have this conversation. If you want to talk, you can call me back or whatever. Sometimes it meant, not talking to him about something, you know, and I was able to kind of do that work around divorce and got to the point where I felt like it's a tool of liberation. And I felt really free to take that step, but I wanted to get some kind of get some financial things in order first. But with the way I'd been acting, I had, I had found a lot of liberation in really just owning my responses to the things like he was very good. One thing I I learned from X, he was very good at asserting and keeping his boundaries. (laughs) Like his boundaries were very clear. He knew what he wanted to do, what he didn't want to do. And he, they didn't budge. And so I took a page from his book and like, you know, there were just certain conversations I wasn't going to engage in. And it got to a point where he knew that. And so he actually left before I did. And I think that's because he wasn't getting what he wanted from the relationship and what he was, was used to getting from the relationship. So the first thing that I heard in this retelling of the unwinding of Daphne and X <laughs> was the point that you felt like it was time to go was when you hit your rock bottom is when you started to not recognize yourself by the way that you were behaving. And in the example that I gave earlier, that was my rock bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having as many things as that man had done during the course of the relationship, all of which were break upable offenses. I don't even absolutely. know if that's a word, right? <laughs> like, absolutely. The cheating, right? The the actual physical manifestation of the cheating was the rock bottom because that was the one thing that I couldn't look myself in the mirror and explain away or feel okay about it. Like there was no way for me to feel okay about knowing I was sharing my man like there there was just mm-hmm. it was no way around it and mm-hmm. so that's the point at which I could leave and I felt no regrets about it because when you're on this roller coaster of a of toxic relationship mm-hmm. you've convinced yourself to leave many times but then you oh, always yes. convince yourself to come back oh yes oh yes <laughs> he and I had broken up 50 
thousand times, but he always knew I was coming back. I don't think the breakups ever faced like that's how toxic it was. We would break up every week and he knew I wasn't going anywhere. But that final time was the final time for me. And that's when it kind of stuck. And so that's why that kind of stuck out to me about your story, because there's so many similarities in these cycles of, you know, toxicity. And then when you get to the point to leaving and then after that, the steps you took to leave, because the point at which you're ready to leave is so important because it informs what steps you take to get away because you're actually intentional about mm-hmm. taking the steps and it's not just performative it's not just deleting his phone number from your phone when you you know it by heart <laughs> right right exactly right blocking him and then unblocking him a day later right it's not those performative things it's i'm deleting your number i'm blocking you i'm not talking to you anymore getting my stuff <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really mm-hmm. start taking those steps. So what were some of those steps that you took to really separate yourself and begin to move on? One of the first things I did was tell people because to that point, I hadn't really told a lot of people like in my family um, who I'm really close to. I hadn't told them really what was going on and that I was getting to that point. So for me, it's like once I got to the point where I was telling them, that made it real. That made it official because I knew they were going to hold me accountable to that because they saw what I didn't the whole time. But they were super supportive of me. I really appreciate that. But once I told them he left, they're like, okay, what you need us to do? We need to roll out like, (laughs) you know, what's what's happening? I love black family. We pulling up. Yes. Yes. And I was like, wait, stand down. (laughs) Stand down, (laughs) y'all. But yeah, that was one of the first things I did. One of the next things I did was hire a life coach. I had been doing some group support activities for maybe like a year, year and a half at that point because of the behaviors I was identifying and dealing with. But I had, didn't have that one-on-one targeted support. And so that coach really helped me to get clear on why I was leaving. Even though he was the first one that left, I was already planning to leave. So she helped me get clear on why that was going to be it for me and how the things I was doing, how the, how my behaviors were aligning with the goals that I had in terms of leaving, keeping myself safe and healthy, um, you know, talking to safe people, having safe and healthy interactions. That step was super monumental to me. And like, that was, that's really one of my big driving factors behind becoming a life coach is that experience because she did in such a short time, she like really skillfully helped me get clear on what my goals were, because even when he left and I had decided like that was it, like you said, that toxicity, it's a, it's in a cycle. So even after he left, he didn't really leave because then, you know, he went to the church. And so this is another aspect of toxicity, which is like triangulation, kind of getting other people involved and trying to get them to apply pressure. And so, um, you know, he went to our pastor and an elder 
And that was actually helpful in a lot of ways for me because there was a witness. And so whenever there was a witness to his behavior, he always made sure that it looked, you know, on the up and up. And so that was actually very helpful for getting things done. But I had to be clear about what my boundaries were, um, what I was and wasn't going to do, the conversations that I was and was not going to have. So kind of like before I got the life coach, I would, you know, have some conversations here and there with Kim and the pastor, you know, and they just kind of steamrolled all over my, the goals that I thought I had for those conversations. But once I got the life coach, she helped me see like, okay, is this helping you get where you want to go? If not, okay, then why are you doing it? Right. And it goes back to like, I felt like I should. Right. And I had to really break out of those patterns of doing what I felt like I should do according to someone else's standards and really embrace the idea that I by myself am allowed and am capable of doing what I think is best for my own life, period. I had to come to that realization. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's such a part of everything that we talked about, even from the beginning, we talked about expectations meeting reality and part of the expectations being external expectations and not your own. And so when you get to a point in your journey, when you no longer let those expectations control you, I feel like that's when your reality (laughs) is going to start being more in line with your own internal desires. Yes. And the things that you want. So I I absolutely really love everything that you just said. And I feel like that is a fantastic place for us to end part one of this episode. I know you're dying to hear what comes next. Me too. But this episode is so juicy that we don't want to cut it short. We want to make sure you get both sides of the story. So come back next week and join Daphne and I as we get to the other side of heartbreak and what happens when you really start to move on from all the things that were holding you down. Thank you so much again, Daphne, for coming and hanging out with us for part one of Navigating Real Heartbreak. We will see you again next week and I'll see you again for plenty more tea that's 100% sugar-free. Woo chow. Mm-hmm, what a show. We shared some good old tea today, didn't we, friend? Thank you for your presence. I truly enjoyed you at the tea party and we appreciate you sipping on some sugar-free tea. With me, your host, Sid Mack. Until next time, be sure to connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Sugar Free Podcast or at Sugar Free Pod. You can also visit our website at www.sugarfreepodcast.com. See you again soon, friends. And be sure to keep the tea party going, a with plenty of tea that's 100% sugar-free.